and welcome to the very first episode of Designated, a Sanctions Podcast. My name is Jonathan Cross, counsel in the New York office of Herbert Smith Freehills. I am joined by my colleague, Alex Hoganson, an associate at Herbert Smith Freehills, and by our guest, Susanna Cogman, a partner in our London office who routinely deals with a range of sanctions issues for companies in the UK and EU. In this podcast series, we will discuss the latest developments in the fast-changing world of sanctions and export controls. We will also be doing a deep dive each episode to discuss a particular sanctions-related topic or event. In this episode, we will be talking about secondary sanctions, an increasingly common measure used in recent years by the Treasury Department, and a major risk area for companies operating or based outside the U.S. Before we get into the main topic of this episode, Alex and Susanna will provide a brief update on the latest developments in sanctions law. Alex? Thank you, Jonathan. So to start out with Iran, negotiations between Iran and the United States to rejoin the JCPOA nuclear deal are currently stalled. The Trump administration withdrew the U.S. from the JCPOA and reimposed sanctions on Iran in 2017. And Iran suspended its compliance with JCPOA in 2019 and began refining uranium in violation of its terms. Despite some early signs of progress during the current ongoing negotiations, uh, recent developments have significantly reduced the likelihood of an agreement. The IAEA reported on July 6th that Iran had taken the provocative step of resuming its uranium enrichment. And on July 13th, U.S. prosecutors indicted four Iranian intelligence operatives in connection with an alleged plot to kidnap an Iranian-American journalist. And the Biden administration has stated that it remains interested in securing a deal despite these developments, but it appears increasingly unlikely that the negotiations will result in an agreement before the term of Iran's current president, Hassan Rouhani, ends in August. Iran's newly elected president, Ibrahim Raisi, has been an outspoken critic of further negotiations with the U.S. on the deal. Yes, and, and just to add, the biggest point of contention, it seems, between the U.S. and Iran is whether to return to the JCPOA's original terms or whether a return must be or should be conditioned on addressing other areas of dispute between the U.S. and Iran that are outside the scope of the current deal. We will have more to say about the potential shape of a U.S. return to the Iran nuclear deal if that does ultimately occur in a future episode. Now on to China. On June 3rd, the Biden administration took a major step in replacing the Trump administration's communist Chinese military companies sanction list with a new Chinese military industrial complex sanctions list. The new restrictions apply to dealings by U.S. persons in the securities of the listed companies. The changes include a number of technical corrections to make the restrictions easier to defend in court, which is important because two of the companies designated under the prior approach won their court cases and obtained injunctions against the sanctions. Yes, and, and these changes, um, w which we've discussed uh, on our blog sanctions notes, remove a major source of uncertainty under the earlier Trump administration rules, uh, in particular by clarifying that the restrictions apply only to the specific named companies and not to their affiliates or subsidiaries, unless those affiliates or subsidiaries are themselves separately listed. So the compliance exercise as a mechanical matter is made significantly easier by these changes. As a more recent update on China, on July 12th, the U.S. added 14 Chinese companies to the Bureau of Industry and Securities Entity list in connection with human rights abuses in Xinjiang. Um, on July 13th, multiple U.S. agencies issued an updated Xinjiang Supply Chain Advisory 
to advise U.S. companies of the legal risks of doing business in Xinjiang. These actions are part of a larger U.S. response to Chinese policies in Xinjiang, and China has announced that they plan to take necessary measures to respond. Yes, and these measures show an increasing willingness on the part of the Biden administration to challenge China on human rights issues as part of a broader focus on human rights issues in U.S. sanctions policy, which the new administration is signaling. And that is a shift from the emphasis of the last administration. And finally, on to Belarus. June 21st, OFAC designated 16 individuals and five entities in Belarus under the Belarus sanctions regulations and related executive orders. The sanctions are a response to human rights abuses, as well as the recent diversion of a commercial airline flight and subsequent arrest of a journalist um, critical of Belarus who was traveling on the plane. It's interesting. So the most recent development from an EU perspective is also Belarusian. So uh, in addition to some quite significant designations of individuals and entities on the asset freeze list, the EU has introduced new sectoral sanctions on Belarus, And those have some similarities to the EU's uh, regime in relation to Russia. So anyone who's familiar with Regulation 833-2014, although they are different in a number of respects. And the Belarus sanctions include restrictions on financing the state and certain state-owned companies, whether by way of debt or equity, uh, providing insurance and reinsurance to the government, uh, restrictions on the supply of certain goods relating to the tobacco industry, the import into the EU of certain petroleum products or potassium chloride, that is uh, potash products, as well as restrictions on the supply of certain telecoms, intercept and monitoring equipment uh, and services. So quite a strong array of uh, sanctions. From a UK perspective, now that we are no longer part of the EU, uh, the UK made a number of designations in in parallel with the EU, um, although they're not uh, entirely identical. The UK government has also announced that it's developing plans for further measures targeting specific sectors of the Belarusian economy. So we are expecting to see further UK sectoral sanctions, likely quite similar to the EU sectoral sanctions uh, in the quite near future. But the UK has been letting the EU sort of take the lead uh, to date on, on that couple of other points just to, to call out briefly um, on the um, EU and UK position. There have been some developments in the Myanmar regime uh, in terms of new designations, some of which are uh, of some commercial significance. Um, and secondly, going back a bit further now to the end of May, uh, the UK introduced a new global anti-corruption sanctions regime, which complements the pre-existing global human rights regime. That incorporates a very broad designation power, but the risk assessment accompanying the new sanctions regulations indicated that the UK government anticipates approximately 60% of persons that it designates under the anti-corruption regulations will also be already designated under existing regimes by the US and Canada. 22 individuals have been designated to date, uh, and we're in kind of watch this space mode in terms of the significance of that uh, thematic regime, um, and in particular, the extent to which the UK is prepared to list commercially significant actors on a unilateral basis. Thanks, Susanna. We will now turn to a more in-depth discussion on secondary sanctions, an increasingly common feature of US sanctions programs and a particular challenge 
for companies who are outside the U.S. and in a jurisdiction whose own laws may be inconsistent with the requirements of U.S. secondary sanctions. First, it's important to distinguish and explain how secondary sanctions are different from what the U.S. refers to as primary sanctions restrictions. OFAC primary sanctions uh, work by prohibiting U.S. persons, which includes individuals and companies based in the U.S., as well as any company organized under U.S. law, any U.S. citizen or any green card holder anywhere located in the world, from entering into or from facilitating or assisting in any way transactions with a specially designated national, that's OFAC's term for a blocked person with whom no American can do any form of business, or with a sanctioned country or a sanctioned sector of a sanctioned country's economy. So these primary sanctions are hard legal prohibitions. They're backed by civil penalties and backed by very substantial potential criminal penalties. But they apply as a general matter only where there is a U.S. person or an act done on U.S. territory at some stage of the transaction. Now, to note that involvement of a U.S. person can be very limited. For example, if a U.S. bank clears a dollar transaction, handles dollar processing for a foreign bank, that act of dollar clearing is itself an act in the U.S. of a U.S. person. And if it facilitates transactions in violations of sanctions, it's a primary sanctions violation. But in order for primary sanctions to apply, there has to be some U.S. person or U.S. territorial nexus. Uh, it can be very limited and indirect, but it has to be there. For secondary sanctions, on the other hand, OFAC is addressing a situation in which the persons whose behavior OFAC wants to influence are not subject to primary sanctions jurisdiction. Secondary sanctions are a tool that OFAC has developed progressively over the years because there's a desire on the part of U.S. policymakers to utilize access to the U.S. financial system to encourage non-U.S. persons to observe certain particularly important sanctions restrictions. So secondary sanctions effectively punish non-U.S. third parties for transacting business with SDNs or engaging in other actions that the U.S. government deems to be secondarily sanctionable. And this is accomplished by prohibiting U.S. persons from transacting with the sanctions violating third party. This means the non-U.S. party risks itself being designated as an SDN if it violates the secondary sanctions. So the U.S. is saying you can trade with U.S. sanctions targets or you can have access to the U.S. market and the ability to deal with U.S. companies and persons, but not both. The U.S. will sanction you if you trade with certain U.S. sanctions targets. We'll discuss some of the consequences of these secondary sanctions later. Now, what types of conduct are subject to secondary sanctions? Secondary sanctions are not a mirror image of the full scope of U.S. primary sanctions. The U.S. doesn't apply secondary sanctions under every sanctions program, and not every sanctions restriction that exists in U.S. law triggers a secondary sanctions risk for non-U.S. persons. It really varies according to the sanctions program. But there are several common categories of activities that have been included in a number of secondary sanctions programs. So to summarize, people and companies can be designated under secondary sanctions on several bases, including uh, material assistance to a specially designated national. So if you provide what OFAC deems to be material assistance to a U.S.-blocked person, you can be sanctioned on that basis frequently. Examples of the type of activity which has attracted actual enforcement action here have uh, been falsifying documents, transactions that might amount to money laundering, 
the carrying out of large or substantial business transactions with or for the benefit of an SDN. Another basis is acting for or on behalf of an SDN. So uh, examples include facilitating shipments or other business transactions, especially in any way that OFAC views as designed to intentionally circumvent U.S. sanctions regulations. Serving as a business agent for an SDN, these things can lead to designation for acting for or on behalf of an SDN. Another commonly employed basis for secondary sanctions is where a company is owned or controlled by an SDN or an asset is, is owned by an SDN. So OFAC has frequently designated airplanes or vessels that are owned by SDNs and has designated companies. Now, if a company is 50% or more owned by an SDN, it is blocked by operation of law. It's already subject to SDN restrictions. But sometimes OFAC designates the company in its own right just to put the world on clearer notice. And in addition, less than 50% ownership of a company by an SDN leads to an increased risk of OFAC designating the company. Uh, entities on which SDNs serve as directors are at higher risk of secondary sanctions designation. And then a, a, a very important basis is, is that uh, secondary sanctions can be imposed for conducting significant transactions with a U.S. sanctions target. So, for example, owning a vessel, a ship used to transport Iranian steel slabs purchased by one SDN from another SDN and shipping that steel from Iran to China in one case led to a designation. Purchasing tens of thousands of metric tons of Iranian steel slabs on a long-term basis from SDNs, that was deemed to be a series of significant transactions leading to uh, the designation of the parties involved. So significant transactions um, are, are not perfectly well-defined, but those are some examples. So Jonathan, uh, how might a company be able to determine you know, whether a transaction you know, rises to the level that is considered significant? Um, there is not a clear test which can, can tell you with a high degree of certainty, really. Um, but OFAC has provided, uh, in some of its guidance, a seven-factor test listing things that, that OFAC looks to, including the, the size of the transactions and their number and their, their impact on U.S. sanctions objectives. The seventh of the seven factors is any other factor which OFAC deems relevant in that case, however. So in general, you're going to be looking at the dollar value, the importance, uh, the impact on the SDN's ability to conduct business, the impact on the identified sanctions objectives of the U.S. But there's going to be a substantial amount of risk and uncertainty if you're conducting any type of transaction with an SDN that is more than minimal because the factors are, are relatively vague. Another basis for designation historically has been operating in a sanctioned sector. So I focused on ways in which dealings with an SDN can lead to secondary sanctions. But in addition, in a number of areas, OFAC has declared a sector of a particular company's economy to be secondarily sanctionable. So, for example, operating in the oil sector of Venezuela may be secondarily sanctionable. Operating in the energy automotive or a number of other sectors of the Iranian economy is a basis for designation. So in general, secondary sanctions exist where OFAC communicates clearly that if you do the following things, non-U.S. persons may themselves be exposed to sanctions designation. The consequences of violating secondary sanctions can be extremely harsh. OFAC may designate the violator, as I've suggested, itself as an SDN, and this would make the violator a blocked person subject to the same restrictions as the sanctioned entity that they dealt with, typically. 
and in essence, completely prohibited from any dealings with the U.S. or its financial system. So uh, secondary sanctions, therefore, can force companies to make a choice. They can do business with U.S. sanctions targets or with the U.S., but not both. There are sometimes other less aggressive secondary sanctions measures authorized under particular sanctions programs. So some secondary sanctions programs may provide for uh, revocation or barring of visas for executives of the offending company or being declared ineligible for certain forms of financial assistance tied to the U.S. But the most common form secondary sanctions take are simply SDN designation. Now, why are secondary sanctions utilized and why are they controversial? And then Susanna can get into a bit more of that topic. There are several reasons why the U.S. government has become increasingly reliant on secondary sanctions. And I think if you roll the clock back uh, 15 years, secondary sanctions were a fairly unusual and infrequent component of U.S. sanctions programs. They were used in a handful of particular special cases. And over time, they become uh, not universal, but a relatively common feature. Why is this? I think one reason is that there is sometimes little or no direct trade between the U.S. and a sanctioned country or a sanctions target. And so if you simply say no U.S. persons can do business with, with that target, uh, that will in fact lead to almost no business being discontinued and almost no financial impact on the target. And because sanctions are a tool that the U.S. views as uh, designed to modify behavior and to create incentives, if there's no financial impact, there are no incentives. In addition, the uh, U.S. financial system gives the U.S. government considerable leverage in pressuring foreign companies to comply for a number of reasons, including the centrality of the dollar in international commerce and the fact that most dollar transactions clear via a U.S. correspondent banking relationship, and uh, therefore the credible threat to cut off a company's access to the dollar-based financial system is a very, very powerful tool. In addition, secondary sanctions are faster and less difficult to implement than securing formal cooperation from foreign governments through diplomatic channels or by proceeding through multilateral sanctioning bodies or potential sanctioning bodies like the UN Security Council. And secondary sanctions can even secure foreign companies' compliance with U.S. goals over the active opposition of the relevant foreign governments. Foreign governments sometimes try to prohibit compliance with secondary sanctions using uh, local requirements not to comply or to create workarounds for companies to avoid them. One example is that after the U.S. left the JCPOA and reimposed secondary sanctions on Iran, several European countries that remained in the JCPOA created a trade mechanism, which was known as INSTEX, designed to enable companies to conduct uh, business without using the U.S. financial system and trade with Iran. So while the Europeans did establish that mechanism, however, most European companies seem to have avoided using it, and so it stands as both an example of potential mechanisms that may counter the effect of U.S. secondary sanctions and the limited impact in practice, perhaps, of some of those mechanisms. And uh, so I'm going to turn it over to Susanna, who can, can speak a bit about the EU and UK perspective on these issues of U.S. extraterritorial sanctions and relevant blocking legislation. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, and actually, you've, you've kind of alluded to it already that the starting point of EU law looking at this is that the sort of secondary sanctions you've just described are unlawful. 
Um, the EU does not recognise the extraterritorial application of US laws of this sort um, and consider them to be contrary to international law. So that's by contrast to the primary sanctions you've described, which might have an extraterritorial effect on US persons, um, but wholly extraterritorial sanctions are viewed as unlawful. And the EU uh, reacted uh, to such sanctions first, actually, in, in 1996. So the EU blocking regulation or blocking statute, as it sometimes calls, uh, dates from then and, and originally addressed specified US measures in relation to Cuba, uh, Iran and Syria. It had a very significant update uh, in 2018 when the US withdrew from the JCPOA. And I'll talk a little bit more about the blocking regulation, but it is important to note that although that's often uh, the main focus when considering the EU law position, individual EU member states can have other blocking or anti-boycott laws. Uh, quite a well-known example is the AWV, uh, which I won't attempt to pronounce, but is the um, foreign trade ordinance in Germany, which is in some respects a little bit wider and different from the blocking regulation. The way, however, that the EU blocking regulation works is to prohibit compliance with specified extraterritorial US sanctions. Some confusion can be caused by the fact that uh, what it does is it lists in an annex to the regulation uh, the blocked laws with which uh, compliance is prohibited. Um, and those are simply a list of the statutes and executive orders, which include both primary and secondary sanctions provisions. Um, so um, although it talks about the effect of those uh, measures, the sort of specific statutory provisions aren't listed, uh, but it is clear that the aim of the blocking regulation is, is to prohibit specifically compliance with secondary sanctions. This can also cause some uh, sort of debate around the edges as to what is and isn't blocked, for example, in relation to EU subsidiaries of US companies uh, are the uh, they are within the scope of the blocking regulation and should one view the application of the block laws to them as a matter of secondary or, or primary sanctions. But in any event, the thrust of it is to list the relevant secondary sanctions measures and to prohibit compliance with those. Um, there are some other aspects to it. There are, for example, reporting obligations for directors of companies who are subject to the regulation uh, where uh, effectively their company uh, is impacted by the uh, blocked laws. Uh, there's also some provisions which relate to um, sort of protection from uh, enforcement. So, for example, um, if one had a US judgment of some sort based on the blocked laws, then sort of EU member state courts um, would be prohibited from enforcing it. In terms of the consequences of breaching the blocking regulation, that's principally a matter of domestic member state law. So the blocking regulation itself prescribes that member states should impose uh, effective and, and dissuasive uh, sanctions for breach of the blocking regulation. But those will vary between member states. And in some cases, it might be an administrative penalty. Um, in others, it might be a, a criminal offence. But actually, the concern of many companies is that uh, the blocking regulation will give rise to a civil litigation risk. And there's a recent example of that I'll, I'll come back to in a moment. Uh, just a few more points on the, the blocking regulation first, though. Um, it is possible to obtain authorisation um, from the EU to comply with US secondary sanctions, um, although anecdotally such applications are, uh, are quite rare. There's a 
implementing regulation which sets out further provisions in relation to that. The Commission has also issued a series of FAQs uh, in relation to the interpretation of the blocking regulation. Um, now, technically, those aren't binding, but they are something which the Commission itself and Member State uh, competent authorities are likely to have regard to in interpreting the regulation, so they are relevant. Uh, there is a, an important FAQ to the effect that EU companies are free to choose whether to start working, continue or cease business operations in Iran or Cuba, and whether or not to engage in any economic sector on the basis of their assessment of the economic situation. So it says the purpose of the blocking regulation is to ensure that business decisions remain free, so they're not forced upon EU companies by secondary sanctions laws, but not that uh, a company has to maintain a particular relationship or maintain relationship with a particular um, sanctioned country. Um, having said that, and, and this comes back to the point I was alluding to earlier about civil litigation, there's quite an interesting case in which the Advocate General in the ECJ has just issued uh, an opinion, and that's a case concerning a claim brought by Bank Meli, uh, which is an Iranian bank, against uh, Telekom Deutschland, a German company, um, in respect of the blocking regulation. And um, uh, Telekom uh, Deutschland uh, had sought to terminate its contract. Uh, it was a supplier to Bank Meli, so it terminated that contract um, and its relationships with four other customers who had Iranian links um, shortly after the coming into force of the renewed US sanctions on Iran uh, following snapback. And the context of this is that um, German contract law permits ordinary termination of contracts at any time on notice and without giving reasons. And one of the issues in the case was whether Telekom Deutschland was therefore allowed to terminate uh, as it had done without giving reasons or whether it could be obliged to do so, which might, um, as you can imagine, flush out that that decision could have been based on compliance with the blocked laws. The Advocate General's opinion isn't binding, uh, but it's of kind of persuasive weight, uh, and we'll see what the, the court rules in due course. Uh, but on this kind of interim basis, uh, he recognised the difficulties for companies created by the conflicting obligations under US secondary sanctions and the blocking regulation, uh, but nonetheless concluded that Bank Melly had rights which it could uh, rely on under the blocking regulation. Um, that it could rely on those in order to force Telekom Deutschland to provide reasons for and justify its termination. Uh, and further, it said that Telekom Deutschland couldn't, uh, quotes, hide behind any vaguely credible reason, close quotes, for termination. Uh, he recognised that companies might choose not to do business with Iran, um, but said that in order to demonstrate that the reasons given for doing so were sincere, a company would need to demonstrate that it was actively engaged in a coherent and systematic corporate social responsibility policy, which required them to refuse to deal with any company having links with the Iranian regime. Further, he said that if the reason for termination was in fact compliance with the US blocked laws, then the German court would be required to order Telekom Deutschland to resume its contract with Bank Meli. So rather than damages being a remedy, for example, 
uh, the termination would be of no effect and uh, Telekom Deutschland would have to continue um, providing services to Bank Melli. So it's quite a significant ruling. Man- many companies try to navigate the potential conflict between the EU and the US regimes by saying that if they're choosing not to do business with Iran, for example, uh, it's for reasons other than compliance with the block laws. And that approach has some backing in the commission FAQ I mentioned earlier. But clearly this uh, ability for Iranian parties effectively to, to sue and to require reasons to be given for uh, a particular decision which has uh, affected them in this way may make that form of navigating the the sanctions perhaps more uh, difficult than it was. Moving uh, briefly to the UK, uh, many people have asked me, now that we have Brexit, can we finally cast off the difficulties caused by the blocking regulation? I'm afraid not. The UK has retained uh, the blocking regulation post-Brexit. There are, of course, some slight changes to the drafting of the regulation to make it more UK-centric. Another interesting change is that applications to comply with the US sanctions will now be granted via statutory instrument. And so there's one example so far which relates to uh, permission given to a a uh, UK company in relation to defending uh, Helms-Burton litigation. I think just to wrap up on that, clearly the blocking regimes do create significant problems for companies who wish to have a global policy of OFAC compliance, um, but to do business in jurisdictions where this may be prohibited under local law. Uh, and really that sort of underscores the importance of thinking about these things very carefully and ensuring that local law considerations are taken into account when implementing global sanctions policies. So do you think, Susanna, that uh, secondary sanctions will continue to come forth from the U.S. and lead to these disputes in the U.K. and EU? I think so. I mean, we're certainly aware of a number of cases which, you know, uh, are um, you know, at the pre-action stage or have been threatened or where the blocking regulation or secondary sanctions play some sort of a a role. There's a a couple of English High Court cases over the last couple of years where secondary sanctions, not blocking regulation, but secondary sanctions considerations have been in play. So we see that as an area of continued activity, I guess, and and risk, certainly from a, a UK and EU perspective. I think the other kind of interesting dimension is going to be the possibility of other jurisdictions kind of getting on the blocking regulation bandwagon. There were some effectively sort of blocking measures at one stage being discussed in in Russia. Clearly, there are some measures in uh, sort of Hong Kong. So I think as the US builds out more secondary sanctions affecting more um, jurisdictions, you will see other countries sort of thinking about whether these sorts of measures could be effective. Um, the EU blocking regulation, I think, isn't very effective other than creating a headache for um, for companies, but the kind of the balance and the dynamic may be different in, in some other jurisdictions. Yes, I, you know, I think if these trends continue, it's increasingly challenging for global companies to have a global sanctions compliance policy that doesn't, uh, you know, that, that tries to account for, in some cases, the deliberate incompatibility of different sanctions regimes, let's say. You know, it is possible, and I hate to discuss the implications of rumored forthcoming guidance, but it's possible that there'll be 
a further executive order or other guidance document from the Biden administration forthcoming, setting forth the new administration's sanctions policy views. And one widely reported element of that potentially forthcoming guidance is a more multilateral approach in which the U.S. tries to work more closely with its allies in developing and implementing sanctions. And at least with respect to the EU, if that does eventuate, that might uh, mitigate some of these conflicts going forward. And to me is reminiscent of the widespread use by the U.S. of secondary sanctions with respect to Iran before the nuclear deal, when the U.S. position in general was that U.N. sanctions already imposed a variety of restrictions which were consistent with at least the spirit of the U.S. secondary sanctions, the Europeans were part of a coordinated effort to increase sanctions pressure on Iran. And therefore, there was a better argument at that time that the U.S. secondary sanctions that were being imposed were consistent with, if not an international consensus, at least a broad approach, which had the, the buy-in and approval of a number of U.S. allies. Yeah, I think um, any any greater multilateralism will certainly be welcomed from the sort of perspective of, of, of EU companies. I should say, if, if, if that doesn't happen, though, Jonathan, the signal from the EU perspective is that they actually will be looking at strengthening the blocking regulation. So there was a... Um, Commission communication in January 2021, so snappily named the European Economic and Financial System Fostering Openness, Strength and Resilience, which covers a, a range of measures which aren't uh, directly on point. But in respect of the blocking regulation, the Commission said that it would clarify the procedures for uh, making applications under Article 6, which allows persons subject to the blocking regulation to recover damages suffered as a result of the um, blocked laws, that it would strengthen national measures to block the recognition and enforcement of foreign decisions and judgments based on the blocked laws, that it would streamline the processing of authorization requests under Article 5, that it would consider intervening in foreign proceedings in support of EU companies and individuals, and it would consider the introduction of new tools, uh, which is uh, slightly cryptic. More generally, that it would consider how financial markets infrastructure, so things like payment systems, could be strengthened to reduce their vulnerability to U.S. secondary sanctions. And um, again, the precise measures they're planning are unclear and would be subject to analysis, which is kind of contemplated by this communication. But certainly, this of the direction of travel from the EU perspective is, uh, you know, what further can we do? to block the effectiveness of these measures and to, quotes, protect, not sure many EU companies would see it that way, but to protect um, EU operators from the US secondary sanctions. Thank you. Well, that is all we have time for today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Designated, Herbert Smith Freehill's podcast on sanctions law. If you liked what you heard, please leave a five-star review on iTunes and hit the subscribe button. We will have great new guests and discussions on each new episode, and we don't want you to miss out. As a reminder, this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. If you would like to learn more about sanctions law or have any other questions, please feel free to email me at jonathan.cross, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N dot cross, C-R-O-S-S, at hsf.com. Thank you.